Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me again today on another episode of the NHS 100K podcast with me, Matt Taylor. Today, I am joined by Dr. Roz Jones, a retired consultant pediatrician. <laughs> We've just been chatting before we hit record. She's got a lot to say, so I'm really, really happy about this. So welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. You're right. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, delighted. Good. So um, as we've said, we just set briefly off, off air. Um, you're part of the heart group, which is doing some good stuff behind the scenes. I'll be putting some deets across the screen for you to go and check that out. If you haven't got, if you haven't checked them out, go check them out. Group of doctors, they've been doing stuff for a long, long time. Um, so there's some good resources there for people to look at as well. And you do some stuff for the Children's Union as well. So I want to kick it over to you to, to sort of just give people potentially a little bit of your background and um, and then why we're having this discussion today. Right. Yeah. Well, I I was a retired, I was a full-time NHS consultant um, working mostly in neonatal intensive care, also looking after children with HIV, and I was the vaccination lead for our hospital trust, um, working with our local community paediatricians. And so I spent my whole career, I suppose, advising parents about vaccination of children against all sorts of nasty diseases. Um, and at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I retired um, prior to that, um, and we were asked to sign up again. And I got, you know, back on the GMC register and I had my online interview. But I'm in my 70s and I wasn't really thinking I would rush into work until all the paediatricians were dead and they really needed me. But of course, it was the joy was that it was very obvious right back from China that this was not a disease of children. It wasn't even a disease of young adults. It was a disease of the elderly and people with severe health vulnerabilities. So although I offered to go back to work, um, they didn't need me. Uh, and, uh, you know, quite clearly. So then I sort of sat there feeling rather guilty at having nothing to do and sitting in the sunshine in March, April, May 2020. And I think when I first thought something's really not right here is when the children whose schools have been closed, and I thought they were going to be closed for like three weeks to flatten the curve. Um, and that we, the elderly, were meant to stay inside for 12 weeks maybe. But the implication was everybody else was going to get up and running again quite soon. And they were talking about herd immunity and so on. Um, and then suddenly that all changed and the schools didn't go back. Um, and then some schools went back according to what the head teachers thought. It, it, it all got very, very messy. So I landed up doing some campaigning back then with us, with us for them, um, who were working to get schools back to normal. Um, and then I left that later to, to join Heart when that got set up sort of after Christmas 2020, 2021. Yeah. Um, and I'm the, their pediatric spokesman. So I started working on the children's vaccines when I was watching local news one evening in February 2021. So just two months after the vaccine rollout had begun. Um, and it had at that point been made pretty clear it was for adults over 50 and the seriously vulnerable. And once they were vaccinated, that would account for 98 plus percent of the deaths in the first wave. Uh, and I heard Patrick Vallance saying that. Um, but then suddenly on the local news, there was an advert from Oxford um, for children to join the AstraZeneca trial. And I was just horrified. I've done quite a lot of research as a neonatologist. I know how hard it is to get things past ethics committees. You do not do research in children if you can do it in adults. You don't do research in children unless it's a disease that primarily affects children, not adults. And so I couldn't quite believe my ears. And I wrote straight away to Andrew Pollard saying, you know, I, I'm really surprised to find you're setting up a vaccine trial for children when you haven't yet got the adult safety data. And particularly knowing that children aren't really affected by this. And I got a reply within the hour. I mean, I knew him already because as I say this is Oxford region is where I work. Um, in effect saying, oh, hello, Ros, yes, you're quite right. We don't know it's safe. That's why we're doing the study. And he was assuring me that this was just a pilot study, though I would doubt the ethics of that, frankly. But it was if it was looked good, then they would go on to do a properly powered 
study, statistically powered, to look at safety and efficacy for children. And there's no way a vaccine for children would be coming out within 2021. You know, this was a long-term, just the very beginning of a long-term project. Um, so I wasn't really convinced, but anyway, that was that in February. But then come March, suddenly the FDA were approving the Pfizer vaccine for um, 12 to 17s. Uh, and I was actually on one of their conference calls for that, um, talking about the fact that we hadn't yet done this in the UK and we would be watching American children like to be our guinea pigs if they went ahead. And I strongly hoped they wouldn't because they did go ahead. And at that point, I did my first open letter with about 60 people signed, sort of like half a dozen professors and, you know, some, some serious people. They weren't all retired people like me, they're working coalface in infectious disease consultants, critical care, general practice, etc. Um, and we wrote to the MHRA in March 2021, um, saying that we hoped they wouldn't follow that route and, and, and be um, approving the Pfizer vaccine for adolescents, um, and giving all the questions we had about safety, etc., etc. Um, and then they didn't reply and didn't reply. And I rang up and actually, I've, I've, I've given you a wrong date there. It was May, not March. It was May 2021. Because in the end, they replied two hours after they had approved it, was the reply I got. In, they approved it in June. And they passed their official deadline for their response. But they got in about five days after they should have responded, two hours after they'd publicly approved it. Um, and so then, of course, we turned our attention to the JCVI because they then actually didn't push it out, which was obviously very frustrating for Sachi Javid. He was jumping up and down saying, we want to hit the ground running. And I'm thinking, why? Where's the emergency for children? That's one of the questions we've asked that they've never answered is this temporary use authorization is the American equivalent. What we call it here is a conditional marketing authorization. And it's dependent on there being an emergency. And there was an emergency for adults. I have no doubt in my mind there was a very nasty illness out there in, in March 2020. Um, and whether we've made it better or worse by what we've done is, is another question. But I, I, I don't doubt this existed. But it was never an emergency for children. They clearly, most of them either were asymptomatic and didn't know they'd had it, or it was really mild, like a common cold. It wasn't the sort of thing you would be rushing out an emergency vaccine for. Um, so actually, quite interestingly, the JCVI held their ground for quite a while. They had a meeting in June 2020, obviously late then, 2021, and didn't agree it. They said that the balance of risk for under-18s benefit risk was too close to call and they didn't feel it was in children's best interest to have this. This is healthy children. And at that point, they reminded practitioners that for children with high risk, they could already have it anyway. They didn't need it to be rolled out to healthy kids in order to give it to children with very serious comorbidities. Um, and then beyond that, it went that literally, if you look at the minutes, I mean, it's very interesting. The minutes, they were quite worried about it and they all agreed that they weren't going to go down this road. The next meeting was called as an emergency meeting, two days after the meeting at which they said, we're not doing this. At the request of the chief medical officer, we've been asked to have another meeting to reconsider. So in other words, they'd given the wrong answer. Um, you know, that's not great. Um, and then at the next meeting in August, they went and said, oh, all right, well, let's give it to 16 to 17 year olds. But they only authorized a single dose, which I thought was interesting because it showed they were acknowledging all the published work on myocarditis which is heart inflammation that's much worse after the second dose of Pfizer and mRNA vaccines. Um, and, you know, it can occur after the first. It's significantly increased risk after the first, but it's at least five to six times higher after a second dose. So they were only going to give one dose. And then they had another meeting, and so it went on. And then in, in September, they still said they were not going to roll it out to healthy 12 to 15s. So they widened their category of what was unhealthy slightly. Um, but at that point, they sort of were obviously under huge pressure and said, well, maybe there's some societal reason, but that's not our brief, so we'll give it to the chief medical officers. 
And then, as we know, the chief medical officers decided it was good to keep schools open. And that would be good for not only education, but mental health. So that meant you could say this was going to be beneficial for children's health personally. But you can't. You can't say that a vaccine is good for mental health. I mean, it just, it just beggars belief, really. I, I, I just couldn't get my head around it. I thought that um, it was very clear that the school closures was bad for mental health. But the school closures were a political decision and they were not really due to COVID because if you looked at the number of children off school, they were hugely inflated by their policy of sending home all the healthy contacts. So not only were we then doing healthy testing of healthy school children in secondary twice a week, so you were picking up, you know, positives that might have had COVID six weeks earlier or something, you know, false positives, et cetera, et cetera. But you were then sending home entire year groups, 150 kids in some cases were sent home for one child in another class that, you know, it just, so, it, and they had actually changed the rules on that quite quietly on the last day of the summer term last year, they said that in future, healthy children, child contacts didn't need to be sent home. So actually, they'd already resolved the problem, which then the CMO said at the beginning of the September term, oh, we need to um, have a vaccine in order to prevent children from getting sent home from school. And they also did, um, they did a calculation of the amount of schooling saved by being vaccinated. So this was to do with days you might have had off school for COVID. And it worked out at 140,000 days, which was about 15 minutes per child. But they admitted that they hadn't taken into account any time lost from the vaccination. So, I mean, you have to wait in the school hall for 15 minutes after the Pfizer vaccine. So even without the time it took you to go to the school hall and line up and get jabbed, so straight away. And it took no account of the fact that the data is that, you know, at least 10% of children are going to have more than a day off school because of systemic side effects following the vaccine and no account of what if you had serious side effects. You know, and what would it do to children's mental health if one of their classmates was one of the people who's been airlifted off the school playing field within a week of the vaccine with a cardiac arrest? I don't know, that would be good for their mental health. God. Wow. 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 When it's put like that. I mean, we can't forget what's happened, can we? No, you know? we can't. We can't. We can't. Um, okay, so what? Okay, so how did you get in, involved in a heart group? What, 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 what did you reach out to them? Vice versa? Well, interestingly enough, they reached out to me. Um, I there were about I think a dozen people in right at the beginning, and, and then they were looking for specific specialities to join, so that their core team had representatives of each area. So they reached out to me as a pediatrician. Um, I think there was somebody else in the heart group already who probably knew me from us for them or something. Um, and it was interesting because I had a conversation with them right back then. That was in January 2021. Um, and I said, you don't want me. You want a working paediatrician. You don't want somebody who's been retired for several years. Um, and they said, well, we haven't got one. And please, please come. And I said, OK, well, I'll come until you get somebody working. We'll do this. Um, and here I still am. And I think that kind of brings me to the whole issue of censorship, because I think one of the, the problems, I mean, I, I can't understand why paediatricians aren't jumping up and down from the walls on this. Um, and I've, you know, I've been in contact with, well, I'm, you know, I wrote to my colleagues when, when they were doing this Oxford trial. And said, well, here's the letter I'm planning to send in a couple of days' time. Is there anybody wanting to sign it with me? Um, and most of my colleagues who I'd worked with for years didn't even reply, which was quite upsetting in a way. Um, and those who did were sort of saying, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I thought it was quite good for children once to be put, for once to be put first rather than last. And then I sent them a load of the stuff that we'd been looking at in terms of side effects and so on. Um, and I got a response saying, oh, that's a lot to read. I'll have a look and get back to you. But then no, no subsequent get back to you. Um, I look at what's happened to some of the young GPs who've spoken out and they've been referred to the GMC. And, you know, Dave Cartland and people like that. How, how does that make other people who are thinking maybe I should be a bit braver feel? It might make them feel 
I can't risk it. I've got a mortgage to pay. I've got kids at school. Um, and, you know, I've, I'm afraid I just haven't shut up. And, I, and, you know, people get a bit fed up and they've said, you know, oh, on a few times I've, I did a, some, we did some videos for Heart quite early on. I did one with Alan Mordew, who's a retired public health consultant, and a lovely bloke, John Flack, who's in his 80s, who's, he was head of R&D at Beecham. So that shows the, the era he was working in. And then it became Smith Klein Beecham and Glaxo Smith Klein. Um, and he was, he was high up there. And he just says, I don't recognize the pharmaceutical industry I used to work in. I just don't recognize it. But, you know, there was one comment after this was, where, why are these three old fogies so speak? Where are the young people? But I think, that, I think that's the problem, that it, it, it's really hard. And it's not hard for me. I've, I don't think they would have stopped my pension. Um, and so I've got nothing to lose by speaking out. And I kind of feel if you can speak out, you must. Yeah, I think it's... Um, it's in, I, I've spoke to, since doing this and before doing this, um, when I first spoke out, it wasn't, it was easy for me, but then everyone who knows me off, off camera will know that I don't have a problem in, in speaking out anyway. Um, yeah. I kind of relish in it sometimes because somebody needs to do it. Um, but it's always been highlighted as a, as a fault, if that makes sense. Whereas now um, I'm thinking crikey, I'm glad I do say stuff because if we yes. didn't, there wouldn't be anyone saying anything. Um, yeah. So obviously you were retired. So, I suppose what the censorship for yourself was was it was it that bad or you know <clears throat> was you able to get a lot out through the heart group oh yeah i mean it's been it's been fine because yeah i i, I mean at least i've got the time that's the other thing i mean a i'm not under that pressure of mm. being being losing my job maybe or being referred to the gmc but b i've got the time to do it and particularly in lockdown you know i wasn't we weren't allowed to go anywhere you know the, the sort of activities i normally would have been doing um weren't around you know even seeing your grandchildren wasn't allowed for for several weeks um and so you know i got reading and writing and so on and you know i've done quite a lot of academic work in the past so getting back into sort of critical analysis of papers and so on. And the joy of the heart group is there's a hundred or more of us who are all in lots of different specialities. There's academics, there's data analysts. Um, you know, we all bring a different perspective. And if you're unsure about something, you just, you know, put it up there and say, look, what I've read this paper and I kind of, I, I, I'm sure there must be something, I can't work out what's wrong. And then somebody else says, oh yeah, because the method they've used, you know, and so on. So we bat ideas off each other um, mm -hmm. and that's great. And I think that, again, has been what's so abundantly missing from the scientific discourse generally because of the censorship, you know, created by YouTube, Twitter, you know, a policy to take stuff down has made it much harder to get the best out of this. You know, if you've got a real serious emergency, you need the best brains out there putting their heads together and really batting ideas around um, and they were shutting off half the people who might have been able to contribute and get this, you know, you see what happened to the, the Great Barrington Declaration and the way they were trashed quite deliberately, you know, hacked emails subsequently showed that, you know, Fauci said, you've got to take them down. And that's just awful. Um, you know, people at the, at the height of their careers of academia being deliberately trashed because they're saying something which will go against this narrative. And the other big area that, of course, has got very much censorship on, and that's any alternative treatments. Because again, I think any successful treatments would have made it certainly harder in the US. They have, for their emergency use authorizations, there has to be, A, it's got to be a bad enough disease, but B, it's got to have no other available treatments. And of course, right back at the beginning of the pandemic, the countries in the third world who hadn't got intensive care to throw at this and hadn't got lots of money to throw at furlough for, you know, sending workers home, et cetera, et cetera. You can't, can't afford lockdowns if most of your people are, are scraping, uh, uh, living together. Um, and of course, they looked straight away at recycling existing known drugs and things like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin which clearly have, you know, a lot of benefits to be had. 
um, and are cheap and are readily available and already in the WHO's 100 best drugs list, um, have been widely used in the third world. And yet in the US, it's illegal. You'll get taken off your hospital um, board um, admission rights and so on if you use it. There have been legal cases to get injunctions to allow families to bring in ivermectin for their dying relatives. And that, again, where did that happen? You know, your job as a doctor or in any healthcare professional is to do the best for the patient in front of you. Never before have we been told what treatments we can give, what treatments we can't give, and that you cannot give a dying patient something that just might help. You, obviously, you, you have to get informed consent. So you would say to them, look, there isn't a lot of experience with this. Or you might be actually saying, as in these drugs, that there's huge amounts of experience. But, you know, you would you would be allowed to do it. And be told you're not allowed to and you'll be struck off if you do this. Australia, they've been, had, you know, letters around saying you will be struck off if you prescribe this. Have you ever experienced anything like that in the past before with any other medication or, you know, vaccine or anything like that? Absolutely no way. Nothing like this at all. I've also not experienced anything like the sort of coercion and the propaganda. You know, mm. when did you have any, I mean, I just think when the meningococcal vaccine came out, you know, yeah. people were delighted. They were just going off to get it. But the people who didn't get it, because there always will be people who are worried about vaccines and have chosen not to, they weren't being bombarded. They weren't being bribed with, you know, pop-up clinics at the Ministry of Sound, um, threats of vaccine mandates for nightclubs. That came in. I and mean, that was one of the interesting things in the letters. I'd just seen that the JCVI had announced that they were going to give it, not give it to the under 18s. This must have been August last year when they were still not going to give it to under 18s. And they said, um, oddly enough, in this statement, but 17 year olds, three months before their 18th birthday can get it. And I just yes. thought that's very odd because normally either you're 18 or you're not. Why would they say that? That was in the morning. In the evening, there was Nadim, Nadim Zahawi, who was at that stage, stage till the vaccine czar um, minister. Um, and he was on the dreaded press conference and he announced this plan to make a vaccine mandatory for nightclubs in September. So obviously, if you're on a coming up and you want to go clubbing on your 18th birthday, you have to have your vaccine three months before going clubbing because you've got to have the second dose two months after that and still have a month for it to work so you can get it onto your vaccine pass. Bad luck if your friends were younger than you, they couldn't come too, but never mind. Um, and all of that, of course, it didn't actually happen, did it? They dropped it by the yeah. September, they dropped it. So all those 18 to 25s who rushed to get vaccinated as a sort of rite of passage into adulthood or the 17 and three quarters who thought oh i must get it now i'm nearly big i can get it i feel what i mean that's weird and they had one at thorpe park um big theme park they had Charlton athletic football ground where they were offering a thousand free tickets to the football for the first a thousand who turned up to get vaccinated yeah we've never had anything like that and i think the other thing that's been really worrying for children you know you think about the the coercion for the, oh, the masks in schools, the social distancing, all the things that are really bad for family life and mental health were being put about as don't kill your granny. And the psychological impact for a child, you know, if your grandparent does die of COVID, you're going to be worrying that somehow it was your fault, even when it wasn't. But if you've yeah. had the government telling you it might be your fault, well, that is just diabolical. And so we saw exactly the same coming up for the vaccines. And even this summer, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly have had a big campaign on the 5 to 11s, which we'll come back to in a minute. But they had an advert with this white-haired granny with a little sort of six-year-old sitting on her lap and the advert read to the parents saying, you know, it, the vaccine is now available for 5 to 11s, so make sure you get them vaccinated to protect your family members. Well, that's a lie because we know now that the vaccines are not good at preventing infection and transmission. In fairness to the drug companies, they never claimed they would be. It's about one, the only thing they didn't claim, but they, you know, they claimed it was to reduce severe illness and death. Um, but the government have pushed that line about protecting 
the public and we did the same with masks. I wear my mask to protect you. I mean, what clever psychology is that? Because then anyone not wearing a mask is clearly selfish and doesn't care about their fellow citizens. Yeah. So I think that's not been great. No. I mean, I love the way just lining everything up as well, just in case people forgot what it's been like for the last couple of years. Because I think yeah. people people want to forget and they're yeah. desperate for it to go back to normal. Yeah. They just they want to be quiet shh, uh, so, so, so we can all go back to some sort of sort of normality and it's it's not going to happen they're not going to they're not going to allow it to happen um oh so okay so i wanted to run something by you a couple of things by you then so obviously you know when they were they were talking about gillet competency and everything else with regards to consent mm. from children and all that kind of stuff i had this conversation with a few people uh can you can you correct me if i'm wrong so gillet competency was obviously for for young people or young girls predominantly to 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 get contraception um, yeah. to, to stop getting pregnant <clears throat> so the 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 kind of criteria for for them having capacity to consent yeah. was different than it would be yeah. for uh consenting to a vaccine is that right essentially yeah. so so yeah, okay it's, on, sorry. Yeah. It, it's it's definitely crept i mean this is crept in gradually over the last few years i think for vaccines particularly and for other treatments. But you're right, it started off with Mrs. Gillick, who, of course, poor woman, it landed up with her name on the Gillick competence because what she was was a mum with five teenage daughters or five daughters, and she didn't want them to get contraceptive advice without her knowing it. And she took the local health authority to, um, to court to get an injunction to stop them. And, of course, she lost. Um, so it was agreed that actually the daughters, I mean, it wasn't that the daughters were wanting contraception at the time. I think it was hypothetical, but she lost the case. Um, but if you look at the judgments, it's very clear that this has to be one-to-one, -one, properly explained. You've got, as a GP, to know, really understand that the, the teenager in front of you has got the capacity to make the decision. You've also got to explain to them what the risks of not having this intervention are. So in other words, if they're having unprotected sex, then it's the risk of a pregnancy. Um, and so if you could persuade them actually not to have unprotected sex, given they're underage anyway, then that would be a much better solution. You wouldn't be dishing out the pill. But if they want to continue and they're adamant that they're going to continue having unprotected sex regardless, then you're weighing in the balance. Well, hang on, if I leave this girl and she won't tell her parents and she's going to carry on with this boyfriend regardless, and she's only 14, 15, and if she gets pregnant and she gets really sick, etc. So that's the balance. Now, in this case, if you're looking at, when you just think of a secondary school vaccination, you're all rolling up your sleeve and going into the hall with all your friends, who's sitting down and deciding you're Gillick competent? It's, it's just a nonsense. And also, the capacity to decide on the risks the long-term risks are unknown so my my take on it was that you couldn't really consent to something with unknown long-term risks but it's interesting because all the letters we wrote we wrote i mean i haven't really talked about that yet but the uh, a subset i set up separate from heart really this group of people who were writing letters and we in the end set up as the children's covid um vaccines advisory council and that has gone on writing letters and we've got a letter where, in fact, due to um, deliver to Downing Street next week for our new Prime Minister. Lucky, lucky her. Um, Welcome. <laughs> but anyway, um, the main thing was that there, um, so we've written loads of letters, um, mostly to the MHRA and the JCVI, but it became apparent that one of the things really lacking in the vaccination service has been informed consent for adults as well as for children. Because if you look at the GMC guidelines, the information you have to give when you obtain consent has to be relevant to the person in front of you. So a mantra like safe and effective doesn't cut it. You've got to tell the person in front of you what the risks are. And I think the thing that's been very apparent about COVID, which has not hit the public consciousness sufficiently, um, or certainly not the politicians anyway, um, is that the younger you are, the less risk you're at from COVID. I think people understand that. But yeah. what they don't know is that the younger you are, the more risk you're at from side effects. So you've got this tipping balance that goes the wrong way. So if you're elderly and you're high risk of COVID and low risk of side effects, you may think, okay, that's fine. 
if you're young and your risk of the, you know, um, COVID's going down there, but meanwhile your risk of side effects has gone up a bit, then you land up in a completely inappropriate balance going the wrong way. And the, all the side effects have been like that. If you look at the clots that occur with AstraZeneca, mm. I remember talking to our local haematologist. She was saying, oh, don't worry, Ross, we've only had 10 in the whole country and they've done 10 million vaccines. Well, that I thought was a bit odd because, in fact, my opposite neighbour's son was an SHO in Bristol. And at the time, they had five people in their intensive care with these venous sinus thromboses. So he said, I can't have half the cases in the country in Bristol. That doesn't sound right. But anyway. So it was more than 10. But the other thing was it wasn't 10 for the whole 10 million because it turned out to be differentially for young women. So presumably it was the poor care workers and healthcare workers who'd got in with that early tranche with the over 80s for the care homes and the over 75s for the NHS. They were the ones getting the side effects. And it was only, it was as so often with, with drug side effects, it was the Scandinavians who picked this up, not us. So our MHRA was still denying it was a problem after, you know, Denmark and Sweden had paused it for all under 50s and then under 40s, under 30s, I think. Um, and we were still saying it wasn't a problem. And in the end, we said, OK, we won't give it to under 50s, then under 40s. But exactly the same applies, of course, to the mRNA vaccine. So at the point when we stopped giving AstraZeneca, they said, oh, but don't worry, because, of course, we can give them Pfizer instead. But Pfizer, if you look at myocarditis, the Israeli data, just to take an example, the, they've done it by age. And for the over 30s, the risk of myocarditis for males after the second dose was one in 72,000. And for the under 20s, the 16 to 19s, it was one in 6,000. So, you know, more than tenfold difference between under 20s and over 30s. But your COVID risk for that would be going tenfold the other way. You'll yeah. be at much more risk of COVID if you're over 30 than if you're under 20. So the whole balance risk is bonkers. Mm -hmm. um, and so we wrote to the GMC, and I have to say they're the only group who've sent us a sensible reply, a detailed reply, which answered our questions rather than a copy and paste of, you know, most of the replies we've had from the MHRA or the JCVI, or I thought I've had from my MP, they haven't really read the letter. They haven't even taken in that these are a load of professors and consultants and they've put loads of references and, you know, there's a hundred references on the bottom of the letter and they just say, oh, we've looked at it very thoroughly and it's absolutely safe. That's not an answer. But the GMC agreed that they it really was important that you have to get thoroughly taken consent from the individual in front of you. You have to tell them about common risks, but you also have to tell them about Severe risks, however rare they are, if they're severe. And you have to tell them about what is the risk of not having this treatment to balance up against. And of course, if you're a youngster, and particularly if you've had COVID, the risk of not taking the vaccine is extremely low. And it's less than the risk of taking the vaccine. There's been something come out just this week, interestingly, from the States, where they've looked at, because they've still got mandatory vaccines for university, and they've done a specific cost benefit, well, risk analysis, benefit risk analysis for having a booster if you're uh, aged 18 to 29. And to save, if they vaccinated people who'd never had COVID, which there can't be many of those around anyway, but vaccinating people who never had COVID, then they would have to vaccinate 22,000 to prevent one hospitalisation. And in those 22,000, they would expect to have between 18 and 98 serious adverse events. So we're saying saving, not this isn't about saving a death, this is about saving one hospital admission. You might have somewhere between 18 to, to 90 admissions on the other side of the balance sheet. Um, Iceland have done the same with children and they've they had no, they've got a, a healthy population and they've got a small, they've only got 60,000 kids in Iceland, but they hadn't had any hospital admissions for COVID, not one. And they've already had a hundred adverse events from the vaccination program and including 11 serious side effects, which defined by needing hospital attention. So, uh, you know, it just, and then Denmark, I'll be pleased to see have now scrapped their vaccine program for under 18s completely. And the director of their board of health was interviewed saying he thought they'd made the wrong decision last autumn because they, they'd started them out in November last year. Um, and 
if he'd known then what he knows now, he would never have recommended it. So it is possible for a politician to say, I got this wrong. Norway, I know too, they've spoken out and said the lockdowns were wrong and they apologised to the public of, of Norway. So that's partly why we thought we'd get try and when we realised we were going to get a new prime minister, we thought, well, maybe there's just a chink where you can get in and say to the new prime minister, OK, you weren't absolutely responsible for making all these decisions, though you were part of it because you were in the cabinet, let's face it. Yeah. But, you know, now is a moment when you could make a change and say, yeah, we did get this wrong and we're going to change. But I think it's a, a fleeting chance. But what was interesting was that the 5 to 11s have suddenly gone off this week. They're no longer being recommended the vaccine. Now, it's gone very quietly. When there was a statement back in February from the JCVI recommending this non-urgent offer, it was all very oddly worded. And if you look at the minutes of the meeting where they decided it, they're full of anxieties about long-term side effects and lack of knowledge. Um, but they had a little caveat right at the bottom, which said that this was up to children who were rising five, whose fifth birthday would be before the 31st of August 2022. So as of actually 1st of September, the programme has ended. And they didn't make much of a fanfare about the fact it was ending. They were interested in Guernsey. They've been advertising very much, saying, oh, quick, quick, you won't be able to get it after the 3rd of September, so roll up now. So for the last week, they've been doing, you know, extra catch-up clinics for anyone who's missed it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's gone. And, they've, and, and I saw at the beginning, I thought this has to be a mistake. They just haven't quite noticed their own footnote and now tomorrow they'll say oh no absolutely of course it's going ahead it's it's restarting on Wednesday but they haven't and the Guardian covered it with people being incandescent like Christina Patchell um, from Independent Sage saying how awful that this was being stopped and these poor children would now have to wait till they're 11. Think how many times they'd have to get Covid between now and being 11 but otherwise they'd have to have a booster every six months wouldn't they if not every four from now till they're 11 and I know which I'd rather um, but anyway, the upshot of it all is that it's real. And Adam Finn was quoted in The Guardian saying that the risk is very low and we always said this was a temporary measure. But it does beg the question, if it was a temporary measure, in their justification for doing this back in February, was that it was not going to affect the Omicron wave we were in at the time. It wasn't really going to save any significant hospitalizations unless there was a future severe wave. They had two, two sort of scenarios, one which was if the next wave is similar to Omicron, and the other was if it was more severe. They didn't consider that it might be even milder, because so far each wave has been, each variant has been milder than the one before. But anyway, they were basing this on the possibility it might be more severe. But they didn't say, but which we asked them, is that, yeah, OK, it might be more severe. There's no reason to suppose it will be. But will a vaccine you give in April to the Wuhan strain virus have any impact for some new nasty variant that comes in the autumn? And of course, the data is that it won't. We know the 5 to 11s, their vaccine efficacy has gone negative by six weeks. So six weeks after being vaccinated with the Pfizer children's formulation, you are more likely to get COVID than if you were unvaccinated. Um, um. I, I don't know how much, I mean, I don't know how these countries can now apologise because we've not changed anything that we've been saying for the last two years, have we? Mm -hmm. No one, it, it's just, you know, we've had to just try and shout louder. Um, oh, so mm -hmm. I, it, it's, it's, I initially felt sorry for people at the beginning because he thought, well, okay, you can give them the benefit of the doubt because obviously it was new. It was yeah. done a good job in ramping up the fear. But now, two years in, you know, and people are still. It's just why. It's just the whole why thing of, of it all, you know. And uh, you know, so it's easy for to, to fall down these rabbit holes and get you know branded, you know, mm. tinfoil hat person. But then you want to turn around and say, listen, just lay out everything like you've done over the last two years mm -hmm. and then and then say you know it could be this it's it's you know you, you can't mm -hmm. disbelieve anything anymore because it's so um, um yeah, yeah. Um, just even things like vitamin d you know our, our, I, I i work in sour we've got a big asian population we've always had quite a lot of vitamin d deficiency um and 
our local cardiologists at the beginning of the pandemic, they were saving vitamin D samples on all the admissions and they wrote it up and they looked and found these were all people in hospital, coming into hospital, your chance of being moved from the ward to intensive care um, or to dying was inversely related to your vitamin D level. So the lower your vitamin D, the more likely you were to fetch up with severe disease or death. But what did they do about it? Have they run a campaign through the local press to say, please, please go and get your vitamin D supplements? And here we are still with the nice guidance recommending 400 units, which is the dose that I learned about at medical school for preventing rickets. But what I didn't learn at medical school was, because I was there a long time ago, was that actually it's very important vitamin D for immune function and T cell function. And it's that aspect that needs a much higher dose. And, you know, all the guidance for around preventing COVID um, is around taking at least a thousand or two thousand or maybe five thousand units. It's not about taking 400 units, but the NICE guidance still says there is no evidence for vitamin D being protective in any way at all. And yet there is. There's dozens and dozens of randomized trials, um, you know, other scientific basis for why it should be true, looking at T cell function, as I say. And yet, and what's to lose? It costs nothing. You know, Matt Hancock even said he was going to deliver vitamin D to care homes. And he took months and months and he didn't do it. And I thought, why do you want to do that anyway? Why don't you just ring the care homes and say, you need to do this? A packet of vitamin D from Lidl's costs for 180, three months supply, costs less, less than one cost of coffee. So, you know, they could just put it on the bill for a care home in three months and just add it to the sort of meals bill. But they didn't. They didn't because they were not advised to. And they would have done if they'd been advised that you need high strength vitamin D. But there was no money in it, was it? I mean, you have to follow the money. That's the simplest when you say why. There's an awful lot of places you can go that are very depressing and scary. And I think the follow the money is the, the most straightforward. Um, yes. Which is that if there'd been a drug company with a patent on vitamin D or ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or vitamin C, then they would have been pushing them. And as it is, you know, ivermectin, Merck, suddenly came, who were the company who'd originally marketed it, but it's now long out of patent. It's been around for 30 years. They suddenly came out and said they, were, they weren't sure it was safe for COVID. Well, they've marketed it for donkey's ears for parasitic diseases and it was safe then. So why would it not be safe for COVID? And then lo and behold, three days after they said this, they had put in their application for their new monoclonal antibody for COVID, costing 500 quid a shot intravenous in hospital. So why would they want people to be taking a tablet in, at home that costs, you know, 80 cents or something? There's no money in us being fit and healthy, is there? That That is, that yeah. is the problem. There is no money in us no. being fit and healthy. I, 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 I've, I've always thought this as well at the beginning when they were telling everyone to stay in the house, they could have made, you know, given everyone health advice, even putting Mr. Motivator on the telly and getting the old yeah. ladies doing bits and pieces. Yeah. You know, Joe Wicks was doing the stuff for kids, wasn't he? Yes, he and was. I, yes. They, should have, they should have got him. And there was, there was another chap doing stuff in the park. And was he Mr. Motivate? There was a guy doing stuff in the park, but it never got like Joe Wicks was on the BBC from 9 to 9.30 every day for, for the whole of that first term when they were out of school. Mm. And the government could have got him to do it. He would have loved to. I'm sure he would have done something. Mm. And stopping all the sport, all the things that keep people physically healthy, you know, obesity levels have gone up, um, which, you know, if, if we would really to be trying to help people be um, at lower risk from COVID come the next winter, we would have been working on general health. And, and they, yeah, you're right. And this is the thing. It was it was almost like they were doing everything in their power to stop you from not getting it. Uh, and even if there were things that you could do to prevent yourself or reduce the chances of you getting it or keeping fit, uh, they wanted you to stop doing that as well. It, it yeah. was just shut up and stay at home, die and please be quiet. Um, it was just I, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, well, I have my theories, but um, we'll, we'll yeah. keep that for, for, for another day. Um, okay, briefly, tell me more about the, the letters that you uh, that you, you sneakily discussed briefly. <clears throat> what's, yes. uh, what's the crack with the letters in Downing Street? 
Um, yeah, well, what we've, um, I mean, as I say, we've written about a dozen different letters on lots of different, mostly on childhood vaccines. We've done one recently with Hart on myocarditis guidelines from the UK um, HSA, which say you can have a second shot even if you've had myocarditis, as long as you've recovered, go ahead and have another shot. I mean, just just awful, awful stuff. Um, and the letters to the GNC and so on. So what I thought we would do, and I've, I've won one letter we had about 700 signatures on. Um, and so we're just printing them all off and we're taking them to mistrust. We've got a, you know, a, a slot with the Metropolitan Police. You can go into Downing Street, actually to the doors of number 10, um, you know, with proper clearance. So you can only take six people. Um, and we're going to do that. So I tried to do that last year, but at that stage they'd stopped all of the those sort of petition deliveries, but they've restarted now. Um, and so that was the idea, just to, just, I mean, it's just to say you can't say you didn't know. She can't say, well, I didn't get told by Boris that you'd written him all these letters before, and nobody from the Department of Health showed me all the letters you've written. So I just thought, well, it's an opportunity to flag it up again with the public and get perhaps a little bit of coverage, um, not just, I don't suppose she'll read them, but if she does, um, I'm, I'd be pleased. Um, and I know another letter went this week, I think it was in the Daily Skeptic, um, with uh, Mike Fairclough, who's a head teacher, um, Beverly Turner, journalist, um, and um, various people, Tony Hinton, Claire Frick Craig have written. Um, so I just, that, that, that's the purpose. It's just to bring more um, light um, onto the lack of information out there um, and make sure that everybody is aware that these are not... I think, you see, the, the assumption is that everybody who's talking about this are cranks and talking off the top of their head. Uh, you know, one of the people who signed these, and he's one of the sort of uh, lead frontline people on, on this COVID Vaccines Advisory Council um, is Gustav Gleesh. She's a professor at St George's of Oncology and he's the director of the um, Institute of Cancer Vaccines and Immunizations. And so, he, you know, he's a guy who knows what he's talking about. But he did a whole thing in the first year. He was a professor in, of genomics, I think, in Norway, and they wrote up the whole thing about the lab leak theory. They looked at the genomics of the virus and all the known back viruses, and they just said, you know, when you get an evolution that goes maybe from an animal to a, a different host, you'd expect it to be a very small incremental steps. And that the, the profile of the Wuhan uh, SARS-CoV-2 was just too far away from the last known bat virus to be thinking that it had just come from this wet meat market, which was what we were being told. And they knew that as well as a wet meat market, there was a big vaccine um, and um, research center in Wuhan. So they published this in The Lancet, this letter. Um, and then of course, the following week or so, there was a letter published by 70 serious senior scientists, including Jeremy Farrar, who was then head of the Wellcome Trust, um, saying this is absolutely not right. It's completely bonkers. It's just, you know, um, definitely from an animal host. So, you know, these two serious scientists got their careers somewhat trashed. And it was very similar to what I mentioned about the Great Barrington Declaration. And again, the email trail has shown very clearly Anthony Fauci, who was funding game and function work in Wuhan, saying to Jeremy Farrar, I can't write this letter, but you need to because you're big in England. You know, can you get up a letter to take this, you know, take this down? And half the people who signed the letter hadn't even read it. They'd had their names put on it and they were not aware it had been written. Um, so that, you know, is not great. Um, but, no, he, you know, Fauci's suddenly getting his, he's suddenly, I don't know whether he's realised that his days in, in the CDC were numbered because he said he was going to stay to the end of Biden's term of office, but suddenly yeah. he's Christmas. But again, there's, there's good work going on in the States. They've got injunctions to retain all the emails, etc., um, when he retires, they can't wipe the, you know, the, the, it's on record that this this information is being required by the court. 
And I saw also in Australia um, lawyers there saying, now we've got the amount of information we've got about vaccine injuries, anybody who continues to give these without explaining the risks, um, you know, will be culpable. That's interesting. I interviewed someone the other week who's, um, they're currently taking Pfizer to court for, mm. I think she said it was, because uh, the American law systems, legal systems, pretty sticky and murky. Um, but she's basically, she's suing them on behalf of the American people, if that makes mm. sense. I think. Mm. Um, even though she's the only one going to court, if she wins, it'll be on behalf. So I think she said it was for, for 2.9 billion. Um, oh, she was involved in the, um, she was one of the site managers um, of a private company that was carrying out the, the trials. Oh, okay, and, yes. She's a yeah. muscle blowing. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had her on last, uh, the other day. So I'm going to be, not this week, but next week's episode. Um, and it was interesting talking to her, but obviously she couldn't say too much because she's not allowed to say too much other than what she said. Um, so, it, but, but it is, it, things are moving in the right direction and there just seems, it, we just got to get past this, um, that you were wrong phase because it's like, look, we don't care now. We just need you to get over it so we can all work together to, to, to get yeah. through this and get, going with, you know, but um, I'm hoping it will. In some ways, you know, if people can turn around and just say, look, you know, the dis some of the decisions we make, I mean, inevitably some decisions will be wrong, but the trouble with the public inquiry, the assumption was that the public inquiry was going to show that they did too little too late. They weren't going to look at both sides and think, okay, did you do too little too late or did you actually do too much too soon? Why did you throw away the pandemic um, preparedness plan and suddenly follow what the, they were doing in China? It, it, it was odd that, because again, I mean, I was saying about my background obviously was in neonatal intensive care and a bit of infectious diseases. But I was also, when I was, I was director for women and children at the local um, hospital that I worked and I was on the pandemic planning team for swine flu. And it was interesting because the figures, the modeling, I think it was the same numbers. I presume with hindsight, it came from Fergus. And, yeah. um, but, uh, um, you know, and it was very scary, but nothing was suggested. There was no question about lockdowns or, you know, any of it. And it was all then about getting early treatments ready. I mean, that was going to be Tamiflu, which probably mm. wasn't very effective, but, it, you know, it's how we were going to make sure it was available in all the pharmacies. So anybody got symptoms, they could send a neighbour to go and collect it and um, so on. So you'd have early treatment. And again, I think that's that was something quite odd here. I mean, again, the idea for a doctor that when somebody rings you saying that they're not well, instead of going to see them, which is what you usually would have done, you say, oh, well, stay indoors and wait till you're so ill that you've gone blue and you're too breathless to walk across the room. And then you can call an ambulance and they'll take you to hospital, but they won't let your partner go with you. Um, and, and when you get to hospital, we won't actually give you any decent treatment because, you know, we haven't quite worked out what to do. But obviously, if we were worried about hospitals being overwhelmed, because that was the worry, and, you know, you looked yeah. at Italy and it did look seriously as if the NHS could get quite overwhelmed because we've always had winter pressures uh, you know you know yourself um, and you know the, the way things are with ambulances stacking up and so on this isn't new it was just has been much worse than usual yeah. but anything that could have kept patients at home early treatment that's the only thing that could have actually saved the NHS mm. and it, it could have done yeah we were sending SATs probes out to people, you know, oxygen yeah. saturation. We were sending them out to people, but that was it. So you can watch yourself become hypoxic. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, oh. The, the nice guy in New York who was sending, he was visiting them all, over, all his over 50s. I think he, he sent them all a letter saying, if you get the following symptoms, get in touch with me. And if you're young and healthy, just take some, you know, lemon barley or whatever. Um, but if you're in a high-risk group, I will come and see you. And he had a pack which had hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, and a SATS probe. Hmm. And that, you know, and he had, you know, he had no deaths in his very elderly population. And when they wrote it up later, comparing with other GPs in the same part of New York City, um, he would have much worse outcomes. Um, but again, that didn't go down well because he made the mistake of sending this to uh, Donald Trump. 
who said, oh, how wonderful, this, you know, American GPs found this fantastic stuff. And of course, as soon as Donald Trump mentioned it being good, it was yeah. automatically had to be bad. I, I do wonder how things would have been different if all this hadn't come in a, an American presidential year, election year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, it was huge. It became a political football between the Democrats and the Republicans, very clearly. So anything that he'd done had to be rubbished. Um, and a lot of what he said was totally wacky, and he was the most objectionable bloke. But the fact that he was saying hydroxychloroquine might be useful was actually quite right. But you couldn't say it because Trump said it, and therefore it had to be wrong. And we were a bit like that here. It wasn't quite so bad, but, you know, it's... It's become very politicised, and that's been sad. And seeing, you know, almost families pitched against each other in, in the same way that Brexit was made into this divisive mm. thing, which should have been a political debate, but mm. became very emotional. And we've done exactly the same with COVID. Um, I, I have no idea how our new prime minister is going to start bringing people back together again. <laughs> Uh, not much hope. But, you know, it, unless we can do that and we can have some sort of healing of our mental health and our attitudes to our neighbours, it doesn't bode well for society. No, and that, that, that's that's one thing that kind of, and I'm conscious of time, so we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up shortly, but that was the one thing that kind of shocks me the most is how quickly people turned on each other. You know, like you said, friends, I've fallen out with friends because you've just seen a certain side to them. You're like, I don't know if I can just ignore that now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and people have shared, you know, bared their teeth, if you will. Yes. Uh, but they're just carrying on like, oh, don't worry, you know, it, it never happened. And it's like, well, I can't forget how you were to people and how, how other people, you know, treated people yeah. like us who, who, who went against the grain and things. And we were just treated like an inconvenience. It's like, oh, why have you always got to say something? Yeah, <laughs> It's like, well, because this isn't right. Um yes. But, um, but you know, if, it's, uh, if it was a test, then they've got their results. So in class classic British fashion, I think we're starting off slowly, but we're, we're gaining more momentum, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think so. I, I, I feel as if things are changing. I mean, one of the things also that's changed, I was interested to know that this week, um, certainly our local hospital, they've stopped doing routine testing. Right. And that would be great because, again, this whole... The amount of work involved for the NHS through having to then categorise people and put them here, there and everywhere and move them and test everybody twice a week. You will now only be able to get a test if there's some clinical reason for it, which, again, is normal clinical practice. Yes, you must have a that, reason yeah, like to act upon this result. Um, and if somebody's asymptomatic, why do you need to know about it? Given that we, you know, what, what we know now about this virus, it's not... It's not really been helpful, has it? And certainly for testing routine in schools and in, you know, to go to a theatre and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, so I, I think, I feel reasonably optimistic. It's just whether there's anything else waiting around the corner that is going to be used to try and control us all instead. <laughs> well, yeah, we're being British about it, aren't we? It's like we don't want to get too excited because every time we get too excited or overconfident, then something, you know, they always pull the rug away. So... But it's interesting, travelling around a bit, I've you know, been this summer in France and Belgium and, and Germany, um, and I, I, I think actually we may think things were bad here, but they were a lot less bad than most of Western Europe, um, the US, Canada. You know, Canada, I still think you're not allowed to travel if you're, you're not allowed to leave the country if you're unvaccinated. Yeah, I think that's um, um, the US. You still can't. Nobody can go into the US. I think American citizens can go out, but whether they can come back again, I don't know, because then they'd be unvaccinated, wouldn't they? Coming back in, so wow. you know, and we and I think it's partly because we've never had mandatory vaccines for anything. So the countries where they've had mandatory vaccines for school, for state schooling, you cannot have you vaccinated, but you can't access state education. That's true for the US, it's true for France. I mean, for France, for decades, if you didn't get your children vaccinated, you couldn't get your um, baby state benefits. You know, you had to have your carnet de santé, your little health book, like we have those red books that mm. have all your immunizations and the child's milestones and everything. Your benefit, your family benefit, was dependent on that being complete. So we've never had that, we've never done that. So the first mention of mandates for vaccines came with COVID. And mm. I think it did, although some, a lot of people seemed to be thinking it was a good idea, quite a lot of people were thinking, oh, is this really right? Mm. Um, and, you know, as you said, we were saying before, when we were talking, chatting briefly before the programme, the 
care workers I felt particularly sorry for. And I, I actually went up to Westminster the, that November the 11th um, last year when it was coming in for them. Um, and, you know, they were going to lose their jobs and so on. Mm. But the way they then delayed it for the NHS staff, I think because they realised they couldn't get through the winter without, you know, if they were really going to lose 100,000, like your 100k, um, mm. staff who were unvaccinated, they couldn't have got through the winter. So they kind of thought, oh, well, let's muddle through the winter with all the staff and give them their cards in the spring. And by then, I think the public were beginning to wake up to the fact that actually that's not really logical. And then, I mean, Steve James obviously played a blinder being in the right place at the right time when Saji yeah. Javid turned up um, in the intensive care at King's. And then mm. Steve said, I'm not at all happy. I've had COVID. Uh, why do you want me to take this vaccine? There's no evidence I need it. Um, and suddenly the tide turned, didn't it? Um, yeah, it's definitely a temporal marker moment with that, I think. It was, it, it was. It, it, and then you guys, I think, doing all those little um, snippets, videos. I, you know, I saw a midwife talking. And, you know, I think people just assumed you're a crank. Then when you see this, you know, 50-year-old midwife who's spent 30 years in this job and, and really cares about her patients, and it came across mm. really strongly, and there was a geriatric consultant as well saying, mm. you know, and she talked to her patients, and they said, well, you know, we'd much rather have you as our geriatrician than some agency locum who's vaccinated, you know, and they clearly weren't doing it because they wanted to put their patients at risk. They were doing it because they knew they weren't putting their patients at risk because they'd had COVID, they got good immunity, and nobody wanted to know. And that, again, is the thing that's changed. I think gradually it's crept in that people talk about, oh, you know, there's a lot of immunity from either vaccination or natural infection, and it's just sort of snuck back in. And I think yeah. that's the best we can hope for. We can't have somebody turning around saying, you know we rubbished natural immunity two years ago. Well, mm. we were wrong. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I think there's a two year, there's about a two year lead time. I've said this before, there's about a two year lead time. We're just starting to discuss the AstraZeneca and the problems with that and people getting compensation and rightly so. Yeah. So it'll be about another two years before the rest of the stuff comes to fruition. It seems to be that length of time it takes, by which time, obviously, we'd have had soaring energy crisis, food shortages and all the other bits and pieces. So, so if you're still thinking about the jab after all of that, then uh, then they'll, they'll throw in something else. Um Final words then from you, Doctor. Anything you want to get across to the masses? Well, if you are remotely thinking of getting your teenage, or you as a teenager or as a parent of a teenager are remotely thinking about getting a booster this autumn, I would seriously advise against it. I would just go to a website like Safer to Wait, um, for example, safertowait.com, because there's lots of evidence base for why these vaccines are a risk to teenagers. And Heart Group and all that kind of stuff, what are their plans? Yes, Heart Group, well, we're carrying on, uh, you know, we've asked to be a core participants in the public inquiry. I mentioned that briefly, and again, there was a feedback process for the public inquiry for the, you know, for the terms. And that, I'm pleased to see saw some change because the draft originally didn't even mention the word children anywhere. Um, and us for them did a big push on that. And now it's got a whole section on children. And I think together, um, uh, Declaration and various others and Heart, yeah. we put in stuff about, you know, looking at the whole balance. You must make sure you've got people looking at harms of lockdown as well as any benefits um, and doing a proper scientific appraisal. And also, apropos of the bereaved, there's going to be this big session for the bereaved from COVID. So where was the session for the bereaved by vaccine injury? And that I think they've also added in. Um, and I take my hat off to Sir Christopher Chope actually, because he's been a lone voice in the House of Commons for a long time. And he mm. says, because I talked to him quite recently apropos of this letter going to Downing Street, um, and he's got more MPs now sort of realising where he's coming from. But up until very recently, I, we tried to go and have a meeting in the House of Commons um, and, you know, the, they were just terrified that we might say something anti-vax. I said, I'm only talking about children. I am only, only talking about children. And if I promised I wouldn't mention, you know, even saying, well, maybe if you were under 30, it might not be great. Um, or maybe if you haven't yet had your children, it might not be great. Um, but, you know, as long as I strictly start to children, I might be tolerated. But in the end, we, we held a meeting somewhere else where we could speak more freely. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was a wise decision, to be yeah. honest. 
Oh, all right. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. I haven't been able to get a word in edgeways, but it's been great, though. I like it like that because it gives me a rest. Um, okay. Thank you. for so. I, I, please come on again. And I say this to all my guests as well, because I think it'd be good to see where everyone's doing and how everyone's getting on. Um, keep up the good fight. No doubt I'll be seeing you soon anyway, because I seem to follow you guys around like a bad smell. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, you you likewise. I mean, I think your fight's probably on getting masks and everything out of hospitals now, as well as everything else. That's a big, big issue still. But it's again, we're getting there. But yeah, thank I you very much good. indeed for for inviting me and letting me um, speak freely. No, no, my pleasure, my pleasure. Okay, well, you take care, and nice. I will see you on the flip side, no doubt, and I'll probably okay. see you on some future meetings as well. Thank you, doctor. You take care. All right. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Yeah.